This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. China reported growth in its third quarter uh, was the weakest it's been since the financial crisis. Chinese President Xi Jinping outlined plans to deal with this slowdown, which was uh, saw a report of just 6.5%. And his reassurances seemed to be working as world markets uh, were moving higher earlier today. But how much of this is due to the trade war with the United States? And should other markets be concerned that this could spread? Marshall Meyer is an emeritus professor of management here at the Wharton School. Richard Dasher is director of the U.S. Asia Technology Technology Management Center at Stanford University. Marshall joining me in studio. Richard on the phone. Marshall, great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be here again. Thank you, Richard. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Dan. Good to be on. All right. So, Richard, what do you make of that 6.5% growth report? I don't think this is a major slowdown from what it was in the previous quarter. It's only a couple of a tenths of a percentage point. Uh, I think it's also part of a big natural process that has started uh, really is the kind of structure of the Chinese economy has been shifting. Uh, but uh, I think that we have a context now of increasing tension between China and the U.S. that is bigger even than the economy. And uh, this rising tension is going to make everything a little bit more uh, sort of subject to scrutiny. Well, we already have, obviously, Marshall, some, some tension built in even before this report going on. But, but what do you make of it and obviously some of the potential factors that may play in here? Well, 6.5 percent uh, doesn't excite me one way or the other. Um, uh, the concern is the underlying currents in the Chinese economy right now rather uh, than uh, the trade war per se. I mean, some of the key people in China are saying, and I think correctly, right now, right now, the effects of the trade war are mainly psychological. They really haven't seen it in the economy. You notice, for example, that uh, Chinese exports to the U.S. bumped up substantially last yeah. month, yeah. Uh, perhaps in anticipation of tariffs. There, the, un the underlying issues, though, are, are profound, and I, I think that um, – uh, we'd all do well to pay attention to them. Uh, I have in front of me here a bunch of paperwork. Um, one is a report from S&P on uh, the indebtedness of the local government yep. financing vehicles. I'm not sure whether you've talked about this before on uh, uh, business radio, um, but apparently uh, there's huge subterranean debt much larger than people thought, and S&P is very, very worried about that. Now, add to that some reports coming out in the last couple of days about um, collateralization of Chinese shares. Right. And the numbers there are actually quite staggering because um, if you take a look, you'll see that the number and percentage of collateralized shares, I won't go into the mechanism through which people borrow against them right now, right, right. but that number has gone up, but the value has plummeted as the Chinese stock market has gone down, and there's going to be a lot of margin calls this quarter. So we could expect all kinds of reverberations, um, not necessarily due uh, to the trade war. Richard? I agree. I think that the impact of the tariffs is really 
not going to be felt until maybe next quarter or even two quarters from now. Uh, I agree with Marshall 100% about the uh, huge amount of local government debt and other debt that's accumulated in China. Yeah. I hear numbers about 300% of GDP. Well, and, yeah, I, I was going to say, let, let's distinguish for those people that don't follow it, the, the importance of looking at the debt issue in China, specifically more at the local level, Richard, because obviously, you know, here in the United States, we would potentially have that factor as well. But but with China, how is that significant where all of these issues may play out? Well, first of all, I think a lot of it goes back to the stimulus package that the Chinese government um, put out after 2008 during the financial crisis. And the upshot of all this was that people in China did not really feel the crisis like we did here in the U.S. and in other Western countries. And that has given them kind of a sense of, uh, you know, arrogance, if you would pardon me for saying it that way where uh, the U.S. economy doesn't look good, our growth rate looks like it's really low to, uh, compared to theirs. And uh, what's happening with a lot of this local government debt is that it's not very good debt. Um, historically, the Chinese government has had to write down debts like this a lot in the past. So uh, I think you're dealing with something where the government is trying to diffuse another real problem before it gets out of hand as they see it. Marshall? I agree totally with what Richard says. Uh, going back to 2009, very, very important to do here. Um, one of the worrisome, really worrisome features of this is that that local government debt or, again, um, it's called uh, uh, local government financial vehicle. It's not strictly government debt. Yeah. Um, uh, is being used uh, to finance the stock buybacks, not some of local firms. Excuse me, not stock buybacks, but stock collateralization. The collateralization is done not by firms themselves. They're not borrowing against treasury stock or what we call treasury stock. It's rather that their controlling shareholder is borrowing against his or her shares. Right. And the question is, how deeply involved are the local government? Uh, financing vehicles in this type of lending and with what risks. So because of this being at the local level, how much does that end up playing up to the national level? And as big as an economy as China is becoming right now, is there potential for some issues outside of China with other countries because of some of these problems, Marshall? It's a good question because the law in China always is the stock market doesn't matter. Right. Uh, people's pensions aren't tied up in it. Institutional investing is relatively low. It's mostly retail investing. As we all know, it can be quite volatile. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, um, we've seen, for example, in 2008, early 2008, uh, Chinese stock market imploded. Yeah. Went from, what, 6,400 down to about 1,800. Um, and... Uh, uh, no causality implied here, but ours followed how many months later? Yeah, not very long after. Yeah. Not very long after. And we're seeing uh, this morning the Chinese stock, I would say uh, Monday today, the Chinese stock markets were up a bit. But uh, we've seen a long-term, uh, very sharp decline in the Chinese stock market again. And um, uh, one wonders um, whether that 
reflects, on the one hand, lack of confidence in the economy, and on the other hand, uh, the overextension of firms or their controlling shareholders and their inability to pay off their debts. Richard, your thoughts? I think that also the stock market in China had been driven perhaps to higher levels than it should have been in the in recent years right. uh, because of the uh, expectations of government investment. One of the big structural changes that's going on is that investment in fixed assets yep. and really hard infrastructure has been at the heart of Chinese growth for a long time. But uh, lately, you're seeing the government invest in innovation. You're seeing the government invest in becoming a world power in artificial intelligence. You're seeing a lot of uh, new ways in which the government is involved in um, things that sort of have less tangible collateral. Yeah, but I, I, Richard, I saw a couple of pieces recently about uh, the Chinese economy. And one of the things they do bring up is that apparently people in China are spending less. They're not putting as much money back into the economy as well. And we do know that that's obviously an, an important component when you're talking about economic growth. True. Now, it's interesting to see whether this uh, bump up in um, exports to the U.S. and so forth, in advance of the tariffs, you may see a bump in spending. Marshall? Um, that's an interesting uh, a point. Uh, but longer term, um, the, the, the issue let's go back let's go back to psychology. Yep. Not so much the psychology of trade war as psychology of uh, politics, perhaps psychology of Xi Jinping. Here's the issue I'm raising. I've heard from lots of folks the following. Um, there's been a fundamental change. Uh, Xi Jinping, Everyone admires him, but he has been named the core leader, and term limits are off. Yeah. Um, my business friends have been saying quietly, these are people in medium-sized enterprises, not the largest ones. My business friends are saying quietly, um, is this the signal that reform has come to an end? Right. If it is, they contract their investment and they try to move assets, if they can, overseas. This can't have a positive e impact on the Chinese economy. Richard? That's a very good point. And I think that one of the aspects of the current administration in China under Xi Jinping is that the U.S. is regarded as trying to prevent China's sort of natural growth. Uh, the attitude toward the U.S. is much more negative than it has been. Uh, it's uh, really under a lot of concern and, you know, under our new administration, under the Trump administration, we've had uh, a much more tightening down of immigration procedures. And so I'm seeing people who are much more concerned about the um, – general ability of China and the U.S. to cooperate. We talked a lot uh, about uh, the, the the infrastructure projects that, uh, that China is pushing forward. And one of the other things, Marshall, that was noted in a couple of articles I've seen is the fact that some of these public infrastructure projects are also being financed by private entities now. So that's something that's been discussed here in the United States and seems like it could be a problem in some cases. That's an interesting kind of component that they are relying on 
on private entity to be able to to finance some of these projects. Well, yeah, they they've they've experimented with public private partnerships. Um, quite frankly, I'm not expert on them. I don't yeah. know how well they've done. I suspect not terrifically well. Yeah. Um, if you look though at the same issue outside of China, if you look at their Belt and Road investments, what you see again is they've been financed by debt. Yeah. Whose debt? It's the receiving country. It's the host country. Yeah. And you've seen, particularly in Pakistan, which is very important because it may be one of China's closest allies other than North Korea, even though U.S. is terrifically invested there, um, you're seeing a lot of pushback. You're seeing it in Sri Lanka, a lot of pushback against this debt. Uh, the debt, when defaulted on, results in a Chinese takeover, um, a lot of resentment. So in that respect, the infrastructure investment uh, has not worked quite as planned. Richard? Yes. Uh, in Sri Lanka, I think that the uh, government had taken out a big loan to China for building up the port facilities, and now basically the Chinese own it and run it. This is something that is also fitting in with China trying to have more of a presence in world affairs, yeah. having its influence felt more. And over $150 billion of Chinese government money has gone into this um, Belt and Road Initiative already. Um, and a lot of it is leveraging an even bigger amount of debt by the local governments. So what what does the Chinese government need to do to try and address some of these debt issues to try and ease some of the pain moving forward? Richard? I think they will probably tighten down the restrictions on access to credit by the banking institutions, and uh, they will very possibly have to... Uh, put in more uh, funds into the system again and, and kind of, you know, keep it infused with cash. Uh, but this is kind of an uncertain area. I'm not really sure what they're going to do. Marshall? Here's where President Trump has some leverage. Not directly, but indirectly. The Fed, of course, is independent. Yeah. But they've announced they'll continue to increase interest rates. Interest rates go up here. They either force Chinese interest rates up or force further devaluation of the RMB, which is very close to that tipping point of 7 to a dollar. Mm -hmm. And so as a consequence, um, our interest rate increases make things a little tougher for China. And the choices... China has, from our perspective, seem limited. Now, I think from a Chinese perspective, the choices are less limited, and why is that? Look at the history of China. I bite my tongue on this. Look at the Cultural Revolution. <laughs> yeah. Leadership in China has a history of being able to impose very harsh measures to preserve the government, the rule of the party. Yeah. And again, some of the people I've spoken to say this could well happen. They see our actions as encirclement. Historically, China always fears encirclement. And therefore, they see it as 
possibly, our actions possibly as existential threats. Consequence of that is, as we've already seen, joint military exercises with the Soviets. Yeah. And what we're accomplishing may not be what we aimed to accomplish, because if Russia, China are forced together out of mutuality of interest, yeah. we're in a much weaker position globally. Marshall Meyer from uh, here at the Wharton School Emeritus, Professor of Management, joining me in studio. Richard Dasher from Stanford University, Director of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center, joining us on the phone. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. So then, not necessarily that the, the tariffs are having the impact, but then... Does coming to some sort of trade understanding with China potentially become even more important because it may ease some of that tension? Not necessarily the financial impact, Marshall, but the just that that potential tension you're talking about. You know, I would hope so. I, I would very much hope so. And um, I'm going to suggest something uh, a little bit unusual uh, that could help a lot uh, on this side. I'm not sure about the other side. Uh, many of the opioids uh, in the U.S. Uh, come from China. Yep. Uh, they also come from Mexico, other places as well. Um, and I, I don't know whether this is still the case, um, but I, I think it is. You could put opioids in the mail. Yes. And yes. they cannot be detected. Correct. Yep. And the Chinese government, central government, has said all the right things. We're going to help you out on this. We're going to try to crack down on it. The local governments, however, I don't think have been quite so active right. in helping us out. I think that's an arena where a helping hand, a real helping hand on the part of China, not just our increasing postal rates, that's not going to make any difference, Right, right. Um, could ease public opinion in the United States a little bit. It's outside the normal ambit of thinking right. on the trade problem, but I think it's very important. But it is, as we know, it is a significant problem right now in the United States, and we know that there's an element involvement from China in this. So, Richard, is, is what are some of the areas that, that you would like to see occur? Well, I would like to see the U.S. be able to uh, work within multilateral frameworks. I think that this is an important time for us to go back to our core values and aim for a positive kind of resolution in cooperation, not just with China bilaterally, but with uh, lots of other countries. And I do think that that's a very interesting proposal from Marshall about the uh, opioids and how that could be improved. A lot is going to depend on the apparent uh, willingness of the governments to um, look at each other's uh, needs, and uh, that would be a very interesting way to proceed. And then there would be some sort of tit-for-tat there if China is truly willing to help the United States out with some of the problems on, on opioids, then something would end up coming back in favor of China, which could very well help them out in a, on a variety of fronts. Right, Marshall? Uh, if uh, President Trump defined that as a good deal. True. 
Yes. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Richard Dasher from Stanford University joining us on the phone. Marshall Meyer from here at the Warden School uh, joining me in studio. So what about the the, the leadership aspect uh, of these potential issues, Richard, uh, uh, with obviously Xi Jinping now kind of being president for life uh, and, and and that kind of dynamic, which I, I think a lot of people were wondering when or whether we were going to see that actually play out or whether maybe it was even in play and it really wasn't something that was announced until recently. Well, what's happened over the long term is that it used to be sort of thought that there would be a convergence, that as China developed economically, it would really naturally come to be more democratic and more um, holding to the values that we have here in the United States. Uh, But we're seeing that um, really kind of a reaction against that, and we're seeing real stress on keeping the uh, party very strong. Uh, We're seeing things like arresting the head of Interpol when he goes back to China. Uh, And this kind of uh, sort of sudden redominance on the one hand may remove some uncertainty, but it brings out a lot of uh, things that, as Marshall mentioned, the people in the economy stop spending money because they don't see the certainty of what's happening. I think that uh, for both countries, we really do need good, active international trade and international uh, activities together. Uh, But right now I'm seeing more fear and I'm seeing more concern and more negativity than I've seen in the years that I've been working. But you also have to deal with the the aspect of China China potentially being a a state actor, a player in some of the the hacking issues. And then obviously the technology with companies wanting to go into China, Marshall, and and having to uh, basically fork over a lot of their intellectual property to be able to get into that marketplace. Well, before we hit the IP issue, which I think is the really significant part of trade relations. I don't think the merchandise balance of trade is all that critical, but yeah. the IP issue is. But before we go there, let me mention something else. Go back to the debt bomb. Yeah, yeah. Who buys the collateralized shares when the companies or their controlling shareholders can't redeem them? Answer, the government. Yeah. Yep. So you can look at a long list of companies that have recently moved from private to state ownership. So it, it, it seems as if um, not only are we a little disappointed uh, by the consequences of Chinese economic development for civil society, but that the directionality of their development seems to have reversed a bit. Yeah. Uh, what, what can we do about that? Absolutely nothing. Um, but it's a surprise to all of us. Um, on the IP issue, um, hugely important. Um, and I, I'm shaking my head here because I, given that China remains somewhat decentralized, given that their patent and copyright laws, which I'm not expert in, um, uh, are different from ours. Yeah. It's a very thorny problem. How how does all of this potentially impact Richard U.S. businesses that uh, uh, you know either are 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 gaining 
materials from China or would like to, as we said, be able to, to, dig, uh, to dive deeper into the Chinese marketplace? Well, in the short term, with the tariffs, prices are going to go up, and that's eventually going to float back to the U.S. consumer. But I think that uh, the IP issue is a really thorny one, not only because of the legal framework, but because of the enforcement. And that is more of a local issue than a national issue. Great having you both with us. Thank you, Richard, for being on the phone with us today. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Marshall, great seeing you again. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Marshall Meyer from here at the Wharton School, Richard Dasher from Stanford University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.